This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Fetka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what is going on? Well, you know, we are now in the midst of a litany of worsts in this country. We have the worst inflation in 40 years, the worst border crisis in American history, the worst crime wave since the 1990s, all of which we've covered on this podcast. We've got record high gas prices, but now we're going to get a new worst. We're going to have the worst blackouts that America's had in recent memory this summer. Washington Post reported that the U.S. won't have enough pa- power to get through the summer heat wave, leaving us at risk of widespread power outages, particularly across the Midwest region, stretching from Minnesota to Louisiana, which has enjoyed stable energy for decades. This is a national disgrace, Danny. You know, you and I are both foreign policy wonks. And one of the hallmarks of a free society, as you and I both know, is the is access to cheap, abundant energy. It's air conditioning. Yeah, that's, well, there, that's true, yes. But it's access to cheap, abundant energy. When I worked for Secretary Rumsfeld, I know you love my Rumsfeld references, he kept oh, under God. his desk a photograph of the Korean Peninsula at night. Oh, yeah. And if you looked at that, at the bottom was the free and democratic South, awash in light, uh, while the North was in almost complete darkness, except for a pinprick of light in Pyongyang. And there's actually, he had like a black and white picture. You can now go online and see a full color picture of this. The two countries have the same natural resources, the same people, but one is glowing in the light of freedom and the other one's enveloped in darkness of human misery. And it is unfathomable to me that parts of the United States this summer will look more like North Korea than South Korea. That's where we're at. First of all, that was very poetic, Mark. You know, Thank you. The, the light of Thank freedom you. and the darkness of human misery. You could be a writer. <laughs> oh, you, you almost, it's almost like I was a speechwriter. <laughs> oh, no. wow. You really have a little talent there, dude. Thank you. Uh, look, I appreciate that. You know, you and I are, are analogizing things and making light of this. But in reality, we're talking about foodstuffs being hugely expensive. We're talking about, and we had Dan Jurgen on, we talked about the unbelievable cost of gas in this country. We are now looking at people dying from heat exposure. That was the story that I couldn't believe, was the story in Wisconsin of two people who suffered heat-related deaths. I mean, this is third world stuff that we're talking about. And why? But it's climate change, Danny. It's a, that's extreme weather. Climate change. That's weather. Guys, Mark is being sarcastic here. That's no. absolute garbage. I don't <laughs> think that anyone disputes, including our own climate experts at AEI, that anyone disputes that there are temperature changes and that there is some impact from anthropogenic warming. But that's not the issue we're talking about. These results are not about climate change. These results are about deliberate choices made at state and local and federal government levels to denude the United States of the resources necessary to actually keep people warm, keep people hot, 
keep people's tanks full, allow them to cook on flame, and I could go on here. Well, and also, if you think the rise in gas prices has been bad, so the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission says that electricity prices could rise by as much as 233% this summer over last summer's prices. 233%. You know, we're talking about 8.5% inflation that's that's crushing people. Gas, you know, you're talking, you know, double-digit inflation in the, in the price of gas. 233% more cost to cool your home in the summer, to keep yourself from dying from heat stroke in your home across the Midwest because of these, of these policies. It's just utter insanity. It is utter insanity, and it's not like this wasn't the result of a choice. This is the problem. You know, as far as I'm concerned, if you can heat your water, and I've said this more than once, if you can heat your water from the sun, you know, knock yourself out. That's awesome. That is absolutely terrific. I'd much rather heat, you know, my shower water with with sunlight than by plugging something in and plugging in a boiler. God knows. But let's not take the boiler out of the house before you've installed the reliable solar panels on your roof. And by the way, let's manage to have solar panels that we install on our roofs that are not a product of genocide and slave labor. Mm. I mean, this is all such a fucking travesty. Please explain that to the the people, because I don't think people realize that solar panels are being produced by slave labor. So part of the problem here, and we've actually talked about this uh, on a couple of different occasions or alluded to it, the United States recognized some years ago that China was dumping solar panels. It was undercutting solar panel production here in the United States. And long story short, China has basically taken over the solar energy market. They're a critical part of supply chains. And a critical part of making solar panels comes from Xinjiang, which is where the Uyghurs live, which is where, as the Biden administration and the Trump administration both said, there is a genocide going on. And we can lie to ourselves and pretend that the solar equipment that we're buying from other countries isn't, in fact, from Xinjiang. But of course, what we know is it is. So, you know, all of these things have multiple implications. It's not just that you're cold. It's not just that you can't put on the AC. It's not just that you can't fill up your tank. It's not just that you can't boil water. You're also aiding and abetting people being put in concentration camps. Oh, my God. I mean, you can't make this up. I mean, what you what you just said is just so stunning that you can't make it up. And it, as you point out, it is a matter of choice. As we talked about with uh, Dan Jurgen, you know, we don't now have the technology to store wind and solar energy. So it literally, if you have wind, if you're depending on wind and solar, the battery technology isn't there. If you don't have wind and sun, you don't have the, that energy, whereas other forms of energy are reliable. Fossil fuel energy is reliable. The reason why we're going to have these blackouts across the Midwest one of the principal reasons is because coal plants are going offline early. They are not investing in upgrades. They're not. Uh, they're shutting down rather than continuing production because why is that? Because the U.S. government has declared war on coal. Because John Kerry goes to the COP26 and says that we were not going to have coal in the United States, coal plants in the United States by 2030. 2030 is eight years away, folks. And we do not have the energy to replace it. And so what happens is, but we're counting on them to continue producing coal power for that eight years while we make the transition to uh, this incredible transition, as Biden calls it, to renewable energy. Well, coal manufacturer folks are saying, no, not really. I'm not going to keep investing in something that you're going to then shut down in eight years. So the plants are going off sooner than expected. 
before there's an alternative to it. And then, oh, by the way, we're shutting down nuclear plants, <laughs> which produce no carbons whatsoever, clean energy. But the left doesn't like nuclear because they maybe they can't distinguish between nuclear power and nuclear weapon. They've been for disarming from nuclear for so long that they don't know the difference. And so we're, we're shutting down nuclear plants. We're shutting down fossil fuel plants. And people are not going to be able to turn on their lights in the United States of America. Yeah. Is this, is this still the United States of America? Right. What the That's crazy, Tom. Yeah, exactly. What the hell is going on? Excellent title for our podcast. We should start a podcast so- with that name. <laughs> So we were lucky enough to get Robert Bryce to join us. He's the Austin, Texas-based host of the Power Hungry podcast. He's executive producer of a documentary called Juice, How Electricity Explains the World. And he's the author of six books. The most recent one is called A Question of Power, Electricity and the Wealth of Nations. He understands this way better than we do, and you're not going to like what you hear. Here's our interview. Listen anyway. (laughs) Robert, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Unfortunately, I don't know if we're going to talk about energy. There's just not much going on. So I don't know. I don't know how we're going to, I don't know how we're, how are we going to, how we're going to fill the time, but I hope we can. I'm sure we can. Well, for most people, there've been just bad news after bad news coming when it comes to energy from the cost of you know gas to uh, the uh, other inflation. But now the Washington Post just reported that we're facing blackouts this summer. You're in Texas. You've always had blackouts there. There have been blackouts in California. Uh, but now they're talking about blackouts throughout the Midwest, which has had really stable electricity for, for decades. Um, what's going on? <laughs> how, can, how can we be in a situation where we're having blackouts in America like this? Well... I'll just preface it by saying, Mark, and, and, and I think that's one of the key questions, but it's not just the United States. We're, we're in a global electricity crisis. Um, if you think the U.S. is in bad shape, I mean, look at Western Europe. I mean, they are in dire straits and uh, we're, you know, we're in summertime here, but the winter looms large in, in Europe and they are facing a crisis on multiple levels. And uh, they're, they're not going to have enough natural gas. They don't have enough coal. Uh, the European countries across across Europe are firing up their coal-fired power plants because natural gas, the, the forward strip in natural gas prices in Europe, uh, the TTF marker is at $40 per million BTUs. In the U.S. now, it's around six. So they're paying 6x uh, for natural gas in Europe, what we are in the United States. So it's become so uh, expensive, it's, they can't justify burning it to produce uh, power. Uh, same thing in, in Australia, uh, blackouts, same thing in, in China and India. I mean, we're facing a, a global shortage of, of, of power uh, for a lot of reasons, post-COVID, the economic recovery, but also just not enough hydrocarbons. Um, but back to the U.S., right, the Midwest, MISO uh, has warned several times now that they're 3,000 or up to as many as 5,000 megawatts short of enough generation capacity to meet demand. California is facing uh, blackouts this summer because of drought and also just it's California and they've been mismanaging their grid for, uh, you know, for decades. So it's across the U.S. And it's uh, what is causing this overdependence on renewables. I warned about this and I'm not I testified before the Senate last November. What's the problem? Overdependence on renewables, overdependence on just in time natural gas, overdependence on imports. and And we're closing our baseload power plants. This is a recipe for disaster. We're following Europe over the cliff. And uh, 
there doesn't seem to be much uh, in the way of, of, of understanding of this among the top leaders in Washington. So let me bring this to, to my <laughs> to, to my level when we talk about such things. You know, we had Dan Jurgen on the, the podcast just recently and a very, very similar complaint. Basically, you know, we cut it off with the old before we were ready with the new. This seems to be malpractice at a government level. Now, in California, we all expect malpractice because it's California. <laughs> but how has this happened in the Midwest? And how is it that the government or the state governments or the federal government has sanctioned closing down plants before these renewables are proven, before these renewables are able to supply stored energy? Well, that's you, you put your, your finger right on it, Danielle, and that's the key issue. We're, we're shuttering what is we know are reliable uh, uh, and cost-effective sources of baseload power and replacing them with weather-dependent renewables. So we can talk about climate change. Climate change is a concern. It's not our only concern. But the big mistake here has been in this idea, if we close our coal and nuclear plants, and one of the criminal acts, and I mean government malpractice, I mean just a, just a complete failure of government, was the May 20th closure of the Palisades nuclear plant in Michigan, an 811 megawatt nuclear power plant in the heart of the Midwest where MISO that very same day, May 20th, where NERC was warning that there are going to be shortages this summer. So uh, to me, the punchline, we can all boil this down to one point, which I think is if we're facing more extreme weather, why in God's name are we going to make our electric grid more dependent on weather dependent renewables? This is the crux of the whole issue. But um, this has been the strategy and it's been supported by the biggest NGO groups in America for years. Well, you know, of course, the left blames climate change for all these problems. And of course, our, our mutual friend, Steve Coonan, has pointed out in his outstanding book, Unsettled, that the U.S. government data shows heat waves in the U.S. are now no more common than they were in 1900. And the warmest temperatures in the U.S. have not risen in 50 years. So it's not the heat waves. It's not the extreme weather. But is the, the power grid, is, the, is it dilapidated? And are we, have we not invested enough infrastructure? Or is it really just the overspeedy transition to fossil fuels? Well, I think it's the rushed closure of uh, baseload plants, in particular coal plants. Now, I won't say it's not just coal. Remember, the Indian Point nuclear plant in New York was shuttered last year, which, again, an, a foolish move of the of first order. I'm, I'm, I'm pro-natural gas, but, the, but the, since that plant closed, it's been replaced by natural gas. Well, natural, there was a bias that we thought that, oh, natural gas prices are going to stay low for a long time. Well, they were low for a long time, but no longer. And now we're having insufficient amount of invest in, investment in the upstream and drilling. So we don't have enough gas to meet demand, to meet the domestic demand and to supply Europe. We're having big uh, exports of LNG. So all of these things together are coming to a head and it's coming to a head during the summer when, yeah, it's hot. Is it hotter than normal? I don't know. But the, but the fact is the policymakers at the state and federal level have ignored our most important energy network, the electric grid, and we're paying the price for it. And consumers are going to pay the price. The the, the electricity and there's a rule in, in plumbing, poop rolls downhill. Same thing applies to the electric grid. Consumers are going to pay the price. And we're already seeing that. I understand the objection to coal from the environmentalists and from the climate change people. What's the objection to nuclear? It's It's carbon free. Why would the environmental movement not embrace nuclear power? Well, Mark, how long do we have? I mean, <laughs> how long is the podcast today? Unfortunately, the left has had this reflexive opposition to nuclear for decades. 
I've written about this many times. The, there was, it was a 48-year span in the Democratic Party platform. I think you have to go back to 1972. And then in 2020, they finally mentioned it for them to have any positive mention in the Democratic Party platform of nuclear energy. This has been axiomatic for the Democratic Party. And I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. I'm disgusted. But the fact is that the Democrats and the left, they don't like nuclear. They, and this is something they've been running against for decades, and they're, gonna, they're loath to change their mind. Remember, even after the invasion of Ukraine, Joe Biden, as far as I know, has not used the two words nuclear energy, didn't mention it in the State of the Union. This is such an opportunity for the Democrats. This could be the Nixon goes to China moment uh, saying we're, we're going to go all in on nuclear. We realize there's no way to get there with renewables. But this is just um, it's, it's part of a re- almost, I would say, a, a religious philosophy uh, within the big NGO, the biggest NGO groups on the left and the, the, the climate activist groups not to embrace nuclear. Now, there are some cracks in that. And some of the some of the climate activist groups are saying, yes, we need nuclear. But by and large, that's just not the case with, uh, you know, the biggest environmental groups, Sierra Club, NRDC, et cetera. So I want to talk about the difficulty of actually building nuclear power plants, even if we manage to persuade sure. persuade these groups and persuade the government of the wisdom of doing it. But two things I want to ask you about first, uh, again, totally related. One, I see that incredibly in the UK, the government is actually going to start paying families to use less electricity in the hope of preventing blackouts. That's That's factoid number one. Factoid number two is this really interesting piece you wrote in Forbes the last month about this new uh, nuclear plant that Rolls-Royce is putting out that is likely to get regulatory approval in the UK, but of course won't, won't be ready until 2029. What struck me about this is not, okay, they're ahead of us, they're smarter than us in doing this, but the comparison in its power generation compared to every single other existing means of power generation. Talk a little bit about that, just so people have a sense of what we're missing out on. Sure. Well, just a quick preface, Danielle, because I think you're on point here, which is that the regulatory scheme in the United States at this point, I think it's just it's effectively impossible to, to license new nuclear reactors. Oklo was a startup. They got poured out by the NRC a few months ago. The NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, actually rescinded the license extensions that it had granted under the Trump administration to two nuclear plants, Peach Bottom in Pennsylvania and Turkey Point in Florida. They rescinded the license extensions. I mean, what is going on? Why? Why would they do that? I mean, so, well, they were petitioned by an anti-nuclear group that they, oh, they needed to do a full new environmental impact statement. So the NRC in the United States, we simply cannot, I, I cannot see a, a, a pathway to licensure in anything like the near term. So back to Britain, Rolls-Royce, you know, there's a very old line industrial company with close ties to the British government. They're rolling out a new SMR, small modular reactor. And you're right, Daniel, the power density is 10,000 watts per square meter. That's 10,000 times greater than the power density of wind. It's a thousand times greater than the power density of solar. That matters because particularly in the UK, but also here in the US, we don't have a lot of extra land on which to site any kind of energy infrastructure. So power density is key. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so in favor of, of, of nuclear is that its power density is unsurpassed. So if we're serious about reducing CO2, we have to be serious about nuclear. But uh, uh, right now, it appears the U.S. is going to be trailing rather than leading in that regard. So, you know, this is another thing. And I, I want to talk about the things that we're not talking about when we do talk about renewables. But one of them is this land use 
I mean, for those of us who have flown over with some fear these wind farms and who have looked at these massive solar fields, it's illustrated very clearly. But aren't there aren't there environmental implications in sucking up all of this natural these natural resources to put these renewables down as well? Well, I would back up even before talking about the natural resources, Danielle, but you put your your finger on it. It's something I've been tracking now for eight years are these land use battles and the land use conflicts. I've been maintaining the renewable rejection database. It's on my website, robertbrice.com. The the count is now 344 communities from Maine to Hawaii have rejected a restricted wind project since uh, since 2013. I mean, 344, some of the latest, there there were a dozen communities in Butler County, Ohio, just in the last few days that uh, petitioned the county and the county said, these are restricted areas in these townships, these 12 townships, no large wind, no large solar. So this, the backlash against the encroachment of big wind and big solar is happening coast to coast, but it doesn't fit this convenient narrative around, oh, wind and solar, they're green and that they're cheaper. Well, where are you going to put it? That's the fundamental and the most important challenge is where are you planning to put all of this massive amount of energy infrastructure? And instead, it's just kind of, oh, well, it's assumed, you know, we'll put it out there, you know, in Trump country, you know, in flyover country. Well, there's no empty land in this country. All of that land out there, people care about it. And they're going to fight to protect their neighborhoods and damn well they should. So explain to us what is, you coined a phrase, the iron law of power density. What, what does that mean and why is it significant for this? Sure. Thanks. That's, uh, I'm glad you teed that up very nicely. Thank you, Mark. Um, <laughs> Well, a hat tip here to Roger Pilkey Jr., because I'm borrowing his line on the iron law of climate. And the iron law of climate is that uh, uh, when, cho- when faced between economic growth and, and action on climate, uh, policymakers will always choose economic growth. Well, so I riffed on that to, to coin the iron law. Until now. Yes. Well, <laughs> and, and, but I know I think that it's even clearer now that economic growth, you know, you see the growth of coal, that Germany, all over Europe, com- countries are saying we're going to open our coal plants. They're choosing economic growth. They're, you know, climate change, not so much. Yeah. But the iron law of power density, let me just make sure I explain power density. Power density is a measure of energy flow. can be harnessed from a given area, volume, or mass. So we care about the energy flow from an area, right? We want small footprints. That's the environmental ideal. We don't, we don't want energy sprawl. We don't want to cover the whole countryside with energy stuff. We want small footprints. That's why we need nuclear. But it's axiomatic. As the lower the power density, the higher the resource intensity. So with, uh, with wind energy, one watt per square meter is the power density. Full stop, end of the story, Elvis has left the building, one watt per square meter. Well, because it's so low, you have to counteract that low power density with other resource inputs, land, copper, steel, concrete, all these other things that are needed then to concentrate the flow of power to make it usable. Solar is a little better, 10 watts per square meter, but it's no match for nuclear at 1,000 watts or even in his Rolls Royce, 10,000 watts per square meter. So the more you have high power density, the higher the power density, the less stuff you need to make large quantities of energy. So it's proven over and over. I mean, it's my my iron law, and but there's no there's no getting around it. So, okay, this is inefficient. We get it. All right, but you know, let let's even set that aside. The real problem of course is it's not ready even if we could use all of the land on the face of the earth and our colleague has done some really good calculations about just how much land would be necessary in order to replace existing power generation. Tell us a little bit about the contents of this piece that you wrote for Real Clear Energy in, uh, in, in late June. 
the amount of emissions that are going to be coming from India and from China, from Europe and potentially the United States, because we have found ourselves in this situation, only in part due to Putin's invasion of Ukraine. The numbers are incredible. Sure. And I'll just finish. Thank you, Daniel. But I'll finish about this idea about power density. So I've, I've done the calculations that, well, actually, it's not me. Václav Smil and, and David Keith at, at Harvard, Václav Smil from uh, Canada and, and David Keith has done the calculations both independently. To meet existing electricity demand in the U.S. with wind energy alone would require a land area twice the size of the state of California. I mean, it's just it's it's, it's silly town. It's crazy town. Because why? Because you can't build wind in California, for one. But that's about the power density issue. Um, so uh, now to your question about the real clear energy uh, piece, thank you for asking about that. What we're seeing now is this rush to coal all over the world, particularly in China and India. They've announced uh, in May and April, respectively, I think, um, that they were going to increase their uh, coal consumption by 300 million and 400 million tons, respectively. I think it's 300 in, in, in China and 400 in India. Or it might be the other way, other way around. Nevertheless, you add them together, that's 700 million tons of new coal production, new coal, incremental growth in coal production per year from those two countries. Well, according to the EIA, burning a ton of coal produces about two tons of CO2. Well, so the math is so easy. I can do it. 700 million tons of coal, that will equal 1.4 billion tons of new CO2 emissions from those two countries alone. That cancels out, or as I say in the piece, obliterates all of the emissions reductions achieved in the United States since 2005. I mean, this, this is just staggering increase. Not only that, but that's only talking, of course, about China and India. One of Germany's dirty little secrets is when they arbitrarily shut down all of their nuclear plants after the Fukushima accident in Japan, what did they turn to? Oh, they didn't want to be cold, it turned out. And, you know, it's not that warm in Germany in the wintertime. So, of course, they turned to coal. Ditto for the French. Yeah. And that's what we've seen just in in, in the last few few weeks is uh, France, the Netherlands, Austria, Germany, all have announced that they're either refurbishing their existing gas plants and reverting to coal, but it's a mad rush to coal. But, you know, there's a challenge here as well in that there simply is enough coal to go around. The coal mines around the world are running flat out. And remember, there has been a, a lot of pushback against coal miners and because of ESG and then also lags because of COVID and labor shortages and the rest of things. And then also some natural disasters, some you know heavy rain in Indonesia, Australia that have limited coal supplies. So we've seen coal prices quadruple. Yes, oil and gas prices have gone up. And I haven't checked it lately, but the, the, the Newcastle coal marker, the one for the Australian coal, has been over $400 a ton. I mean, so this idea that we're going beyond coal is just simply not true because countries all around the world are realizing they, they are not going to do without power. They're going to do what I think was the Czech, one of the Czech uh, poli- uh, politicians said, we're going to burn anything we can find. And that's almost an exact quote from what he said. We will burn whatever we can find to keep our people warm and to produce power. How about coal here in the U.S.? Because the U.S. Energy Information Administration says that uh, shuttering of coal-fired electric plants is going to make up 85% of electric generation capacity retirements, taking 12.6 gigawatts of capacity offline this year. John Kerry was at the COP26, and he said, and this is a quote, by 2030, so that's eight years from now, 
We won't have coal. We will not have coal plants in the United States. The whole world is burning coal out of desperation. And we're going to have blackouts because these plants are shuddering because nobody's going to invest in a coal plant if the government tells them that we're not allowing coal plants in eight years. Who's going who's to upgrade their plants? So they got all these early shuddering of coal plants across the country. Well, what's interesting, Mark, is that we're seeing another a big dose of energy realism. I mean, Danielle asked about the real clear energy piece that I wrote. But just in the last, uh, you know, last few weeks, I think it's in Wisconsin, there were three coal plants that were slated for closure. And now they've said, no, we're going to keep these open. So the, the energy realism is having a major effect here in which policymakers are looking around and saying, wait, if we close these, we're not going to have enough power. And last year, if memory serves in the, here in the U.S., I think coal demand in the power sector went up 17%. Now, I'll be clear coal is on a long-term trajectory downward. There's just no doubt about it. And a lot of that is due to lower cost natural gas, but nat- gas prices have been very volatile. And in part, because we're exporting so much LNG to Europe and they were at $9 now, they've fallen some, uh, you know, substantially since then. But I think what, to me, if it, I'm going to repeat that one of the, the most repeated lines in terms of energy security, it goes back to Winston Churchill, I think in 1908, when he was Lord of the Admiralty or voice of vice Lord of the Admiralty, whatever it was. So energy security lies in variety and variety alone. And what, what I think is clear, what we're seeing and what we're learning or we should learn now when it comes to electricity in the United States, we cannot rely too heavily on gas. I'm pro-natural gas. But by retiring our coal plants and in more, more importantly, our nuclear plants, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. We're just we're damaging our most important energy network. And it just it's uh, it's going to be bad for energy security and terrible for affordability. So one of the things that we talked about with Dan Jurgen was some of the geostrategic implications of this. So it was interesting to me that you talked about the closure of the Palisades Power Nuclear Plant in Michigan. A timely choice there in the federal government. But just a couple weeks later, but not with a lot of fanfare, the Biden administration waived tariff exemptions on solar panels coming out of Cambodia, Malaysia, Thailand, and Vietnam. But of course... Those sound like nice countries, but what do we really know? They're getting their solar panel materials from China. Where in China are they getting it from? Oh, the place where there's concentration camps. And we've talked a little bit about on the, on the podcast about this polysilicon problem. But explain, explain yet another aspect of this bit of crazy that, that we're looking at in the government. Sure. Well, I wrote a piece about this in Newsweek, and it was a few weeks ago, about this uh, relaxation of the solar tariffs. Well, it's clear and the, the, the supply chains for the solar sector are heavily dependent on China, depending on whose numbers you, have, you use. I think the State Department puts uh, the solar polysilicon uh, supply globally, 70% of it comes out of China, and a big percentage of that comes from Xinjiang province, where the, the State Department last year declared that the Chinese government is, is practicing genocide against the Uyghur Muslim minority. And so there was a prohibition on the importation of products from Xinjiang, not just solar, but uh, solar related products, but uh, other things as well. But I think more broadly, to just zoom out a little bit, what's important to remember is that whether it's electric vehicles or solar panels or the magnets that go in wind turbines or the batteries that go in electric cars, the supply chains for all of those are heavily dependent on China. And I'm not a China basher, but we'll do it for you. (laughs) So. It's also clear China is not our friend and China is going to take care of China first. But the reality is, you know, we, we have to understand where we are in the world now. And it's we're living in in some perilous times. 
and to forfeit our advantage on the energy front where the shale revolution has saved American consumers tens of billions of dollars. And now because of this religious belief in, in these alternative, I don't call them green technologies, as Jesse Ossibel says, wind and solar may be renewable, they are not green, We're, but we are ceding our energy sovereignty and a lot of our energy security to Chinese supply chains. And I just think that's a terrible, terrible strategy. And it's not being discussed anywhere near the level that it should be. So exit question for me. You're in the Oval Office with Joe Biden. He's, he's, you know, he, it's a, it's a. <laughs> and, and I cannot get grow wings and fly too, since we're, we're really fantasizing Absolutely. about what, uh, can I play base? Can I play shortstop for the Yankees? You can do that after you, after you brief the president. Go, go ahead. But you're in the Oval okay, Office great, with Joe Biden and you're walking him through this and he says, okay, so what should I do, Robert? Give me the three steps that I need to take to solve this blackout problem and this, this energy problem and smooth the transition to renewables over time? Well, I would say respectfully, Mr. President, you need to get your head out of your dark place and, <laughs> and embrace nuclear and have a special White House briefing to say, we are going to embrace the atom and we're going to do it right now. And we're going to use all of government to make this happen. We are going to reform the, uh, the, the nuclear regulatory commission. And we are going to go full scale in nuclear deployment and we're going to lead the world. Second, we are going to unleash the U.S. oil and gas sector. We understand the issues around climate change, but we have to admit that any kind of energy transition is going to take decades. And in the meantime, if we're going to counter the influence of Russia and Putin, we have to make we have to return to a, a sensible policy in terms of domestic drilling. And I'm going to support it, and we're going to unleash uh, federal leasing on federal lands, and we're going to make that happen right now. And then third, I think it would be uh, uh, getting serious. I'm, I, I think if we can domesticate some of the solar supply chain issues around polysilicon fabrication, some of these other things, then I think then I would be more inclined to support solar and solar deployment. I have solar panels on the roof of my house here in Austin, eight and a half kilowatts. But I think the, those are the, the things that I would do is just say, Mr. President, you got to get serious about nuclear and you need to do it right damn now. And you need to quit fooling around and quit talking all this time about wind and solar and electric vehicles. Those things are maybe cute and they may add incremental uh, amounts of power, but they are not going to move, move the needle. Nuclear will second, uh, unleash the U.S. oil and gas industry. And third, let's look to the future about the about how we can uh, uh, move forward on solar. I'm not going to advocate for wind. I don't like the wind business. I think those the a lot of these wind deployments are just these are all about chasing tax credits. Oh, and well, you didn't ask the fourth thing. Eliminate these insane tax credits for the investment tax credit and the solar uh, for for solar and the and the production tax credit for wind. They've distorted the the electric markets far too long. Eliminate them now because these uh, these industries have become climate change carpetbaggers. They're not. This is about climate change. It's about change. It's about chasing. Uh, tax credits, and it needs to stop. But that is the entire modus operandi of the Tesla Corporation, right? None of us, we, we haven't even begun to calculate what happens if the nation starts to plug its cars in all over the place and the kind of electricity usage that that's going to put on the grid. So, you know, all of this is, is absolutely laughable. And of course, Tesla simply sells all of the other car manufacturers its environmental credits in order to make money. It's not making money selling cars. This is all I feel sometimes on this podcast, we lament the fact that America is turning into Europe. Worse yet, 
America is turning into California. <laughs> well, and 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 you make a you make a good point, Danielle. And and one of the things that's happening in California are are bans on natural gas. Right, the, the Los Angeles and the city of Los Angeles, in fact, just banned the use of natural gas in new construction, new homes, etc. The power grid in California can't handle the demand that's on it now. Why are they thinking that they're going to add yet more demand? And in particular with electric vehicles, this push toward EVs, particularly in California, overlooks the gargantuan amount of energy that we consume in the form of liquid hydrocarbons in form of diesel and, and, and gasoline. So this idea, oh, we'll just, we'll just build out the grid. In California, the electric rates in California have increased at five times the rate of the rest of the U.S. over the last uh, t- decade and a half. I mean, it's it's incredibly regressive what is happening in California, which, by the way, has the highest poverty rate in America. So California is not the model to follow for the United States. In fact, it is a, a disastrous model that they're closely tracking Europe and it's going to end in tears. Which is why they're all moving to Austin to be near you. Everyone <laughs> in California is moving to Austin. <laughs> a quick story. Right. Like everybody in New York is moving to Florida. My daughter, my daughter, Mary, she's our oldest. I'm very proud of her. She's a musician. She moved from Austin to Los Angeles and she got out there with her, her fiance and they're cute together. And, and they were getting out there and they said, what, you're from Austin? Everyone from here is moving to Austin. Why are you moving here? Anyway, the, the, here's the story. So this is several weeks ago. She sends me, sends me a, a text with a photo of the fuel pump at the service station. And I don't know, it was like $80 or something to fill her, you know, little Honda CRV. And I talked to her later and I said, honey, why'd you send me that? She said, you know, dad, you were right. I said, what do you mean? Said, it's crazy expensive out here. And I don't know what they're doing on this energy policy. stuff. I said, sweetie, you're 29. I'm glad you finally think I might be doing something correct here. <laughs> well, you know what they say about fathers. Oh, Mark and I know, you know that. what they say about fathers that kids uh, can't believe how dumb their fathers are when they're teenagers and then can't believe how much they've learned uh, by the by time. They get into their mid twenties. So yeah. there you go. You've learned a lot. <laughs> That's great. You've been terrific, Robert. Thank you so much for your time and for your really great contributions on this topic. Your work is uh, your work is <laughs> extraordinarily important, and we're going to do our best to make sure that people in DC start to listen. Well, that's very kind. Thanks. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Power Hungry PWR Hungry. Uh, my book is uh, uh, my new book is a question of power, electricity, and the wealth of nations. Available in all fine bookstores. You don't have to read it; you just have to buy it. And uh, <laughs> my my new documentary that I made with my colleague Tyson Culver is called Juice: How Electricity Explains the World. Available on all fine streaming platforms. Oh, fantastic! Excellent. We'll link we'll to link all, to all of those. those. Yep. Thanks a ton. Great. Thanks, y'all. So I think we still don't spend enough time talking about the geopolitical and geostrategic implications of all of these choices that we're making, not just putting China in the catbird seat, not just allowing the Russians to have a chokehold over Europe because they are the main energy supplier to Europe because Europe unilaterally disarmed itself, unilaterally uh, closed down its nuclear plants, unilaterally decided that, uh, that it was going to go completely green. The reality is, it's not just that we need to get smarter about this. We need to reverse course. We need to actually do this all differently, more intelligently. Otherwise, we are going to give China such domination over us that the war in Ukraine is going to look like a sideshow. Oh, yeah. I mean, imagine what the world will look like in terms of energy if China invades Taiwan. 
and all of a sudden we have to sanction them and we've made ourselves dependent on solar and we can't get the polysilicon from the Uyghur concentration camps anymore. What are we going to do then? <laughs> you know? <laughs> but, you know, I agree with you on the geostrategic aspects of it. But, you know, most Americans are looking at this and say, geostrategic is fine. I need be able to have affordable energy. <laughs> I need to be able to buy food and gas and cool my home all at once. And I shouldn't be struggling to do that in the United States of America after putting in a hard day's work wherever I am. It's just a travesty what's being done to the American people here. And it's if there's ever was an issue that shows the intersection of bad domestic policy with bad foreign policy, <laughs> affecting the lives of individual Americans in a negative way every single day, every hour of every day, the energy disaster and the electricity shortages and all the rest that we're having is, is the perfect example of it. Right. I will say one sort of highly political thing here, which is I don't understand why Republicans haven't made a big deal of this. The reality is that we see this in West Virginia, right? We know that Senator Manchin and Senator Capito of West Virginia have made a big issue out of this. This is a coal state. They are outraged by the administration's policies. But why have Republicans not made a bigger issue of it? We are subsidizing China. We are facilitating genocide. We are begging at the knees of the Saudis and the Venezuelans, and eventually, I'm sure, the Iranians. And yet, nobody in this administration says to themselves, hey, huh, yeah, maybe we're headed in the wrong direction here. No, they don't. This, this is the thing. I, I have a theory here that I think is true. Which is yours? Which, which is It fine. is your theory? It is my theory. It is your theory? Will you tell us your theory now? My theory is that dinosaurs are very small at one end, then become very large at the middle, <laughs> and then become very small at the other end again. <laughs> no, that is Thank not you, my Monty theory. Python. That is that is John What Lee's is your theory, theory, Mark? <laughs> they like these high prices. They don't want the political blowback. That's why we've got the hashtag Putin price hike. And every time there's a new report about inflation saying Joe Biden says, boy, Vladimir Putin is really screwing over the American people and all the rest of it. But they're happy with it because they think that it'll speed that what he called the incredible transition to renewable energy, a new era of renewable energy. They are happy. And we are having an incredible transition. We're having a, an incredible transition to being California. Yes, exactly. And, and with all due respect, I don't want to live in California. I have no desire to live there. Uh, I don't want to remake the United States the image of California, but that's what they want to do. And it's an absolute disaster. This is intentional. When you have former Secretary of State, climate envoy, saying no coal in eight years, that is intentional. That is a direct policy decision. They are engaged in a war on fossil fuels. And the way to get rid of fossil fuels is not to set a date to do it. It is to invest in other alternatives and make them better so that the free market decides that people will choose because anyone would choose clean energy over, over fossil fuels if it was reliable and cheap and abundant for us, then of course they're going to make that change. You know, let the market decide, let the market get us there, but stop you know, waging war on fossil fuels and causing this pain for the American people because it is intentional and it is deliberate and it is appalling and it's going to cost them in the polls. Well, I sure as hell hope so. And I, I hope at least that the GOP has some smart ideas about this because there should be market answers. We should be innovating. We should be inventing new things. We should absolutely be advancing beyond coal and carbon fuels. All of the above. But, you know, let's not throw them out before we have the reliable alternative, as you rightly say. Hey, folks, thanks a lot for listening. If you have ideas about other podcasts, questions, comments, 
flattery for Mark because he loves it so much. Let us know. We love hearing from you. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.